Welcome back to the second half of this particular episode of Words and Movies. Hope you enjoyed your break. I did. So let's get right down to Claude's going to take us back to the early 1970s, uh, specifically 1970 to 1971, when he tells us the plot description for Rama. Yes, and now I know what you're thinking. We're supposed to be talking about Mexico and the film's called Roma. Well, yes, we're in the Colonia Roma districts of uh, Mexico City. And as Sean mentioned, it is like between 1970 and 71 throughout this film. Uh, our story focuses mostly on Cleo, who's played by uh, Yalitza Aparicio. She is a housekeeper who works for a wealthy family. She spends her days taking care of their four children. That would be Tonio, Paco, Pepe, and Sophie, uh, taking care of the dogs and cleaning the house. She has a close friendship with Adela. That's played by Nancy Garcia. That's the other housekeeper. There appears to be a little bit of tension between the kids' parents, uh, Antonio and his wife, Sophia, who are played respectively by Fernando uh, uh, Grid. Grediaga and Marina de Tavira. He frequently leaves for work trips and Sofia and the kids miss him a lot. Now one day Sofia tells the kids that Antonio is leaving on an extended work trip to Canada. But before he gets in the car, Sofia gives him a very long hug and begs him not to go. And he leaves anyway. So if you're paying attention, you already know what's up. Cleo is dating Furman. He's played by Jorge Antonio Guerrero. He's the cousin of Adela's boyfriend, Ramon. The two couples go on a double date to the movies, but before the movie starts, Cleo and Furman leave and they get themselves a hotel room. While there, uh, Furman shows off his martial arts skills to Cleo, telling her how it has disciplined him and brought meaning to his life. And he professes his love for her. And there's something peculiar about that particular scene, but I'm sure we're going to talk about that when we get to the discussion. Sometime later, Cleo suspects that she is pregnant. Once again, we're in the movie theater and she tells Furman that she thinks she's pregnant and he leaves to go to the bathroom and he never returns, basically abandoning her. Cleo goes to tell Sophia that she is pregnant and she starts crying, thinking she's going to be fired. But Sophia says that's not going to happen and she insists on taking Cleo to see a doctor who confirms, yeah, you're pregnant. So for Christmas, the family goes to Sophia's brother's estate and the kids wonder if their father's going to come along, but Sophia is still sticking with the candidate story. At the estate, one of the housekeepers tells Cleo about violence lately due to land disputes in the area, and sure enough, during the New Year's celebration, something happens. Cleo observes another man hitting on Sophia, but Sophia is insisting she's a married woman, and the party is interrupted by a big fire that has been set by people involved with the land dispute, and the party goers rush out to try and put it out. Back at home, Cleo takes the children to a movie and she sees Antonio, Sophia's husband, frolicking there with another woman. One of the kids sees him too, but he flatly denies that that's who he saw. Later, Cleo goes to Ramon to try and find Furman's location and he takes her out to the martial arts training area where Furman is being trained. The organization training camp set up by the United States, there are three American men who are seen training hundreds of youths in martial arts. It turns out that Furman is a supporter of Luis Echevarria Alvarez, and his initials are seen in the hill in this particular scene. Also in this scene, three Americans are seen in possibly one in CIA disguise, and as a special treat, the trainers bring out Professor Zorak. He's a famous daredevil-slash-strongman type. Zorak challenges everyone, including the spectators, to close their eyes 
then hold their hands over their heads and lift one leg. The trainees think he's kidding. How hard could this be? But Zorik assures them that it takes a lot of concentration and energy to perform the feat. And sure enough, it turns out to be impossible for everyone except Cleo. However, er, nobody notices because they've all got their eyes closed. Afterward, Cleo tries to tell Furman she's having his baby, but he denies it his, and he threatens to beat her if she ever tries to talk to him again. At home, Sophia is on the phone with a friend talking about how Antonio is pretending to be in Canada for the children, and he doesn't even have the guts to tell them what's up, and Paco starts to listen in on the call. Cleo sees him and tries to shoo him away, but Sophia sees them both, and she slaps Paco and yells at Cleo just out of fury. She instantly apologizes to Paco, and she begs him not to tell his siblings. Teresa, Sophia's mother, who also lives with them and is played by Veronica Garcia, takes Cleo to a department store to buy a crib for her baby. Students are protesting outside the building, and while they're in the store, the protests start to turn violent. A man and a woman run into the store bleeding and screaming. They're followed by men with guns who point their guns at all the store patrons. They kill the man who is hiding, and we suddenly realize that the man who's pointing a gun at Cleo is Furman. When she sees Furman is involved, she's horrified, and moments later, Cleo's water breaks, and Teresa rushes it to the hospital, as much as anyone can rush through the traffic caused by the protests. Teresa checks Cleo in, and it's telling that Teresa knows practically nothing about Cleo other than her name. The doctor can't find a heartbeat, so they rush her to surgery, and on the way, she sees Antonio. He tells her everything's going to be okay, but when Cleo's doctor says Antonio can go into the operating room if he wants, he makes an excuse to get out of it. In the operating room, the doctors try their best, but Cleo's daughter is stillborn. Shortly thereafter, a severely depressed Cleo returns to work. Sophia tells the kids that they're going on a weekend trip to a beach town. She invites Cleo to come, not as a maid, but as a guest, hoping it will be good for her. At first, Cleo declines, but Adela and Sophia eventually get her to agree to go. They drive out to Tuxpan, and at dinner, Sophia finally tells the children that their father never went to Canada, and he's not coming home. And the reason for the weekend trip was so that he could get his belongings out of the house. The kids cry, they're upset, but Sophia maintains she's strong, and she promises them everything is going to be alright and it's going to be an adventure. She tells them she's leaving her professor job and she's getting a new job in publishing. At the beach the next day, Sophia leaves for a moment with Tonio while Paco and Sophie want to swim. Uh, Sophia says as long as you stay in the shallow end by the shore, that's fine because Cleo can't swim. Cleo gets distracted for a minute by Pepe and Paco and Sophie are caught in the current and they're pulled out into the deeper water. Cleo suddenly realizes she can't see them and she runs down the beach and out into the water despite not knowing how to swim, but she manages to rescue them. She brings them back to the shore as Sophia and the other children run up. The kids exclaim that Cleo saved them and the whole family hugs. Cleo begins to break down crying. This is where she confesses she never wanted the baby. Sophia doesn't understand what she's talking about at first, but then she catches on and reassures her that they still love her. Group hug! Back at home, the family arrives to see that Antonio's clearing out of his stuff has resulted in a lot of things missing. The family begins adjusting to their new way of life, falling back into their usual routine, and the last thing we see is Cleo gathering up laundry and taking it across the courtyard and then up the stairs to the roof. The camera holds on that view for a long time before the credits finally begin to appear. And I'll note that it looks like a freeze frame because the clouds aren't moving, but every now and then you see a plane pass through the sky. And finally, since I've gotten into the habit of pointing out fun stuff in the credits, in this case they end with the phrase, Shanti, 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 which is how all Hindu prayers for peace end, Shanti being the Sanskrit word for peace. Okay, now when Quran made Itumama Tambian, as I mentioned before, he was sort of licking his wounds 
so to speak, you know, trying to recharge himself after a bad experience in Hollywood. When he decided to make Roma, on the other hand, he was coming from a position of strength. His previous movie before this one, Gravity, was a huge box office success. It also did well with critics and won a number of Oscars, including, if memory serves, Best Director for Quran. So he basically was in a position where he could roll the table, as it were. But instead, he decided to do this movie that was loosely based on the woman who served as a maid for for his family when he was growing up in the late 60s and early 1970s. And while it's not specific, Paco is the character who is probably closest to Quran, as he was the same age as Quran was around that time. And Quran, instead of doing the movie from Paco's point of view, decided to do it from the point of view of the maid. And as a matter of fact, um, the real person that she's based on apparently is still alive, or she was at the time of that Roma was made. She is actually in a very small part in Itumama Tambian. At one point, she gives Tenosha sandwich. But the movie, I think, takes on more of a dimension in being about the maid, in being about Sophia, than it would, I think, if it had been told from Paco's point of view, which is another way that Quran is distinguishing from American movies that are family dramas like this, that are, for lack of a better word, a reminiscence movie, where you know they're, you're looking back at part of your family or part of your childhood or whatever. Um, which is not to say that American movies like that can't be well done. I have high hopes, for example, about Steven Spielberg's uh, movie that is about his family, The Fablemans, which most likely will be out in theaters by the time this episode is released. But again, being told from the point of view not only of women, but also a woman who is in a servile position, who gets to see everything that the kids wouldn't necessarily pick up on, while at the same time, again, being someone who is a different class mm -hmm. than the family that she is working for, that gives the movie an extra dimension that an American movie would not have. There were, in the last decade or so, quite a number of movies that were made from the point of view of a housemaid. Oh. A lot of them in Latin America, although some elsewhere. There were two particularly good ones that came out of South Korea, for example. Uh, one called The Housemaid, which was a remake of another South Korean movie from 1960, 
and then another one, a very different one than most of the movies we're talking about here, The Handmaiden Mm -hmm. from 2016. But while I liked a lot of those movies, uh, for reasons that we're going to get into, I think Roma is the best of them. Uh, Did you like this movie as well, Claude? I loved this film. Honest to God, I really did. Um, and, and, and I think the other thing that, that we get in, in focusing on, so, uh, on, on Sophia, on Cleo, is that we also, Quran uh, he, he, makes a, a kind of subtle distinction between the classes in the, in the scenes where Cleo is getting medical attention. Because, you know, Cleo is very upset. She's going to lose her job. She doesn't know what's going to happen to her and the baby and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And Sophia's like, you're going to a doctor. Come on, let's go. And she basically goes down to the hospital with Cleo and says, you know, she grabs this doctor and she says, you need to take care of her. And in they go. And similarly, when the water breaks and they finally make it to the hospital, you know, it's Teresa who just brings her to the front of the line and says, you take her back. I'll get her checked in. And then we realize she doesn't even know anything other than Cleo's full name. Does she have a middle name? I don't know. Where is she? I don't know. What? How old is she? I don't know. What's her? Bur- I don't know. It's like they don't. She doesn't know anything about her. And at the same time, this is somebody that she has basically gotten to skip the line because this is somebody she's with me. So she gets the preferential treatment. Right. Yes, that happens uh, a couple times throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Now, um, we mentioned in our mini episode um, that when we were sort of introducing this series, the movement called neo realism. Neo realism is a type of film you could also call cinema verite, which sprung out of post war, post World War II Italy with people like. Like Roberto Rossellini and my personal favorite, Vittorio De Sica. And the emphasis was on telling stories of quote unquote real people rather than Hollywood glamour types or upper class movies, movies about the lower class and movies that would have a political point of view and movies that used non-actors a lot, although not always. Um, Rossellini's movie had Anna Magnani, who later became an American star, for example. But Mostly, they used non-actors, and when I say cinema verite, you know, they didn't try and cued up the camera, use a lot of makeup on people. They shot it as if they were shooting a documentary. Now, Quran did mostly use non-actors in this movie. Uh, the only professional actress who was in the movie is Marina Di Tavira, who plays Sophia. Um, and she talked in the movie 
in the um, interview segment that I saw of her that it was somewhat of a challenge to interact with all the non-actors, but it worked. And another of the Godardian things that Quran did in making this is that with the possible exception of Tavira, he never really presented anyone with a script. He would just, on the day of shooting, and by the way, shooting again was done in sequence, but on the day of shooting, he'd tell everyone what the scene was about, and that was especially helpful for the children so that they would be able to act naturally on camera. So in that case, he used neorealism techniques, but this movie is not shot like a near-realist movie. For one thing, again, although this time he, Quran, served as his own cinematographer because Shiva, Emmanuel Lubezki, was not available to shoot the movie, although he consulted with Quran quite a bit, and Quran's philosophy in making this movie apparently was what would Shivo do as far as the look of the movie. But again, a lot of long takes, a lot of takes that last for a long time. The opening credit sequence mm-hmm. is an example. You know, you've got the water pouring in to the drains, and we hold on that for at least a minute or so. Maybe even longer, because we don't even see the drain at first. All we're looking at is the yeah. tile. And it's just yes. plain tile. And then the water washes in. And we're still not sure what's going on here. And at right. first I thought, like, is is this somewhere down near the ocean and the tide is coming in? And it turns out to be the result of somebody cleaning, washing the tile. And then we, we move down and we see the drain. Right. But it's not just things like that. Um, this is in black and white. Mm-hmm. And as we well know, um, there really is no such thing as black and white film stock anymore. So Quran had to shoot this in color and then digitally change it to black and white. Not only that, but there are all kinds of digital effects that are used throughout the movie. Because even though Quran shot all of the movie on location and on locations and didn't really build any sets. You know, obviously Mexico City in 2016 or 17, whenever he shot this, looks very different from Mexico City in 1970, 1971. So he had to digitally rejigger everything to make it look like a period movie, and then add in things like clouds and parts of the fire, the scene around the fire, for example, to make it look more, to make everything look like it was supposed to. So even though he's using the genre of neorealism, he's not shooting it in that same way. Um, So that's... 
could be mistaken, but I did see the documentary Road to Roma almost immediately after this film, and I'm pretty sure that Koran shot it digitally. I, I seem to remember him talking about that because it was the difference between a film having grain and digital having no grain at all. There was a there was a comment right. that he made about that. But that said, yeah, there were there were a lot of areas where he did have to to make some digital fixes. So, for instance, there's one scene which looks like a continuous scene where Cleo was walking through the house and turning off the lights and that's a lot of different shots kind of stitched together and then similarly the scene where the camera follows her out into the water to rescue the two kids while it was it, it, it was shot as one one decent continuous shot if i remember correctly some some water was added digitally okay to the scene because ms aparicio who plays cleo like her character can't swim <laughs> so right so they basically they they had her run out into water that wasn't quite as deep as it was portrayed in the film and then he added a little bit of water to that to that particular shot and like her character aparicio had served as a maid before yes so um that's one way that quran went to uh the neorealistic passes cactus casting people whose backgrounds were similar to the characters they were playing, if not uh, completely the same. For example, in the scene where Cleo's uh, giving birth, those are all real doctors yeah. and nurses and medical professionals there. So that's why it seems natural. Now, you mentioned the bedroom scene. Yes. Uh, that is the only scene where you get uh, differing points of view in the same scene exactly. from different characters. And the reason for that, the reason why there's that rever those reverse angle shots in there is that Aparicio was apparently uncomfortable with seeing Guerrero the actor playing Furman in the nude. Right. I didn't mention that because I wanted to save the, it for this. Yeah. He's doing all his martial arts completely nude. And so, yes, we not only have the nudity, we got the dudity there. So, yeah. So that's again, another way that Quran is distinguishing himself from American filmmakers because the um, we may not be in the days of the production code anymore, but the MPAA, while um, they have no trouble with people leering at breasts or other parts of the female anatomy, when it comes to male anatomy parts, they're very uh, get they're very hide their eyes, get away from me, Satan, <laughs> you know things like that. Whereas Quran has no trouble showing female and male nudity and making it seem natural rather than voyeuristic. Yeah, which actually reminds me, like there was a there was a bit in uh, Itumama Tambien where they talk about. Well, it, it actually it comes up in a, a couple of times where one of the boys, and I wish I can remember which one, is supposed to be uncircumcised and the other one is circumcised. And it turned out that the one who is circumcised had to wear a prosthetic penis because he is, in fact, uncircumcised. Right, yes. Now, um, let's talk a little about the movies that are being shown. Uh, the one that the family all go see is an American movie called Marooned. That's right. 
with Gregory Peck and David Jansen. And the reason why Quran included it there is not only because it suits the time period, but also that was a big inspiration on gravity. And then the movie that uh, Cleo and Furman are watching when she tells them that she's pregnant is a movie called, a French movie called La Grande Vadrouille. Uh, roughly translated to Don't Look Now, We're Being Shot At, which unfortunately I was not able to see because it's not uploaded in anywhere that I could find, even on YouTube. The reason why I mention it, not only because it's uh, prominently shown in the scene where uh, Cleo mentions to Furman that she's pregnant, but also because one of the actors in the movie Andre Borville is someone who we're going to mention in a couple episodes yeah. from now. Okay, uh, I, I, he's I, in Le Cirque Rouge. I think I think it's also worth noting that in both of those films have a little bit of a parallel to what's going on in the characters' lives. Okay, so Sophia and Cleo are in fact marooned by a man. Okay, and then similarly, you know, don't look now. We're being shot at. Well, now you have that scene later on where Fairman is literally pointing a gun at Cleo and somebody else does get shot in that scene. Right. So let's talk about that um, sequence. Um, it is, you know, like all the other long takes in this movie, very well done. Uh, but it is also inspired by a real event. Um, and trying to find the, uh, I think it was called the Corpus Christi massacre. But basically what was going on here was that you had the rise of these far-right military groups in Mexico during this time period. And they were given... Um, covert, but ne nevertheless given, um, they were basically uh, covertly, maybe not funded, but approved of by the Mexican government at the time to attack anyone who was advocating for equal rights for, uh, or better civil rights for Mexican citizens at the time. And there was, as in the movie, this whole tie-in to this macho culture, which, of course, we don't have anything like that in our country at all, or never have. Mm -hmm. But it is specific, you know, they are mentioning, again, specific parts of Mexican history here with this uh, whole massacre sequence. And, yeah, and you're, again, you're, you're right. I looked it up. It was the Corpus Christi massacre. It was June of 1971. Okay. And uh, again, that is an incredibly well done sequence. Mm -hmm. So it, it is. And again, if you, if you want to go check out that, that, um, documentary uh road to to uh roma there there is a big chunk of it that that is dedicated to you know what it took to get that scene and how they did it and 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 everything that was involved with it 
Um, it's it's pretty fascinating how they how they lock that one down. Yes, and I had it right in my notes: the Corpus Christi massacre, <laughs> and it was uh, student demonstrators that that were going after, which they, right. again, you know, never could have happened in the U.S. either. Yeah, yeah, for sarcasm. Uh, now let's see. I got another <laughs> thing here to also, while we're, while we're on that scene. I thought this was kind of amusing. Is did you see the T-shirt that Fairman was wearing? I did, but I don't remember it, it now. Was, it was that old comic. It may still be around. It's a, it's a single panel comic strip called Love Is, and it has like a naked boy and a naked girl, and Love Is this, that, the other thing. And that's all there is to Love Is. And he's wearing a t-shirt that has a frame from Love Is, and it's Love Is Your First Kiss. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes. That's uh, sort of grimly ironic. Mm-hmm. Now... Uh, one other thing that this movie has in common with Itumamatamian is almost all the music in this movie, again, is source music or diegetic music. And that adds to the documentary-type feel that we get. Because Quran, as with the Itumamatamian, is trying to immerse us in this period, immerse us in this story, immerse us in these characters so that when he builds to that emotional climax, the dance and sex scene in Itumamatambian and the scene in Roma when Cleo rescues the children and then starts sobbing, it becomes all the more meaningful. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And I think that the the two of them also have this in common, and, and, and I'm trying to think if we saw anything like this in Itumama Tambien, but, but in Roma, I can only think of two shots in the film that weren't basically taken at eye level, and that would be the opening shot and the closing shot, because you got the opening shot looking down on the tile and the closing shot, which looks up at the sky, and everything else is more or less on eye level with the characters and you get pretty much the same thing with Itumama Tambien. You know, once in a while you get like a long shot of the car, but even that is a view of somebody like kind of standing a hundred feet away and, and shooting toward them. So it's, it's still the same kind of thing. So we don't get, I don't recall anything like along the lines of like an overhead crane shot, watching the car go down the highway or anything like that. And even when we get the scene of the narrator who is talking about, he starts telling this story about like an accident and people were killed and whatever else you like, where in God's name is he going with this? And it turns out he's talking about these people were like 10 years earlier and these people were killed and da, 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 da. And the car passes a memorial that's on the side of the road. And that's the incident that he's referring to and why those things are there. And it appears to be a view from inside the car as somebody passes by. So this is something that that Quran, I, he really seems to take to. And I'm pretty sure when we talked about children and men, we got pretty much the same thing. There wasn't a whole lot of, you know, the omniscient uh, person watching from above down on these characters. And in this case, in both of these cases... What we've got is almost like the point of view of somebody who happens to be in the room and watching the activity that's going on without actually interacting with them. And and so you get not only the long takes, but you get fairly long shots where, as we said, that scene in the bedroom is the only one where you see one person and then the other person and then the one person and the other person. And the only time that the two of them are in the same shot is because we have Cleo's hand intract itself into the shot of Fairman. 
right? But all you see is her hand, and it was probably a stunt hand because she wasn't there for it. So, um, but everything other than that is you're viewing practically everybody in the scene or the camera eventually gets to everybody in the scene rather than that one, two, one, two, one, two that we get in American cinema. Right. And again, the eye level thing, even in the fire sequence, yeah. is uh, all pretty much eye level. And again, that you know keeps us focused on the characters and it keeps us immersed in them as well. Now, you know, obviously American cinematographers, like one of the early ones that we talked about, Gordon Willis, are known to do this too, but maybe not to the same extent. Right. Now, we don't talk much about uh, the studio or who distributes the movie here, except when we talked about, say, um, Duck Soup and Catch-22, where, you know, I argued that... As far as I could tell, the studio was not to blame for the fact that, comparatively speaking, the two movies underwhelmed at the box office, or mm -hmm. so it appeared. Uh, or when we talk about Empire Records, where in that case, the studio did interfere with the movie. But in this case, it is important to talk about the fact that Roma was, and this was a controversial choice, but it was made for Netflix. And the reason why Quran decided to go with Netflix is that he felt that a traditionally theatrical distribution for something like this would mean that not as many people would have seen it. And so he wanted to bring the movie to a wider audience. Now, you have heard me in another mini episode talk skeptically, to say the least, about streaming services, given the fact that as far as older movies go, I feel that it is a lie, to put it mildly, to say, oh, everything is available on streaming. Having said that, I will certainly concede that when it comes to newer movies, streaming services can be invaluable because Quran is right. Uh, if they're marketed correctly, more people will watch something on streaming than they might if it came out in the theater. And it, streaming services might get people to watch something that they otherwise might not have gone to a theater in and scene. Uh, case in point, uh, although there is a chess movie, uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer, that I hope we talk about at some point because it's a very good movie. Movies about chess tend not to do well theatrically, but when Netflix did its miniseries adaptation of The Queen's Gambit, which I liked, by the way, it became what I believe was the most watched uh, miniseries or limited series on Netflix uh, up to that point in their history and sparked a boom in chess playing and in chess sets being sold. And while Roma may not have set 
Netflix on fire, figuratively speaking, like Queen's Gambit did. It did do pretty well uh, in streaming, even though it did have a theatrical release. And um, that was made necessary by the fact, I think, that a lot of older members of the Academy and influential members like Steven Spielberg were not necessarily going to allow it to fall under Academy rules unless it had some kind of theatrical release. But nonetheless, um, and it ended, Roma ended up getting nominated for 10 Oscars and winning Best Non-English Language Film as well as another Best Director trophy for Quran. So I think in this case, although Netflix, I don't know if it has such a great reputation for making or distributing newer non-English language movies otherwise, in this case, going with them was the right call, in my opinion. Yeah, it, it probably was. And it's worth notice, not, noting that this is kind of getting to be Netflix's thing, too, is to to bring in kind of a big name director, finance a film, maybe put it in limited release for a little while so that it qualifies for awards and then make it exclusively um make it exclusively online available and we've already talked about a film like this this is well back yes, in episode the back in episode 31 we talked about the irishman and it was pretty much the same model it was released for about eh, three weeks or so and then it basically opened up on netflix and everybody could watch it so you know it's yes. if it's working for them great it certainly works for us as viewers yes um and the irishman for one being much longer and much more expensive than roma was longer not by much roma was a pretty long movie <laughs> uh yeah but it wasn't three and a half hours long like no, it uh, wasn't. the irishman was it was not so now let's talk about those actors here as i mentioned uh, all the folks except for uh, Tavira playing Sophia are non-actors so they're pretty much being on screen rather than acting mm -hmm. and as we mentioned when we talked about casting musicians and hoping they could act versus casting actors who might have music experience this is not a fight I have a dog in if it works great if it doesn't work, that's bad. In this case, I think it works. And especially... The kids. Oh, my God, they're yes. good. <laughs> yes. and, and the one that really gets to me is, is Pepe, you know, because he's, okay. got this, he's got this weird prior life thing going on that he's talking about. Like, you know, I died and this happened to me. And this is how I died and all these. And he, he does it two or three times throughout the film. He talks about this past life that he has. And <laughs> Cleo doesn't really know what to make of it. She's just kind of like, okay, that's cool, you know. But, yes. but yeah, I mean, sometimes she has to kind of parse out what he's talking about. And then she realizes is okay he's trying to explain like something that happened in a previous life and there there are like themes of life and death that come up a few times in there there's one where she pretends to be dead because of this one i, I think it's sophie who want, doesn't want to get out of bed and so she pretends to be dead and she says something like i like being dead you know and and You've got Pepe, who's doing the past lives thing, and then, of course, the baby who happens to be stillborn. Yes, and then it's sort of a 
cleansing and rebirth in the ocean near mm-hmm. the end. Yeah. And I was going to say, Aparicio, I think, does an excellent job playing Cleo. I mean, obviously, like her character, she was a maid, so she's got that shared experience. But she also gives us the emotional depths of the character. And one other thing I really liked about the movie was the fact that she's friends with the other housekeeper. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, this was based on Quaron's life, or at least the lives of the people who worked for his family. So I'm sure that they got along, the housekeepers in the real life got along as well as they were shown in the movie. But it would have been easy to try and create some artificial conflict between the two of them just for drama's sake. And there's none of that here. No, this the, works out a lot better. And I'll tell you the other reason why is because Adela and and Cleo are both from Oaxaca. And so when they're talking to each other, they're speaking Mixtec. They're not speaking yes. Spanish. And so what you get is where these two people, when they have to communicate with one another, they're doing it in a way that the bosses don't necessarily understand what they're saying. And that happens. I mean, I when, when I lived in New York and, and I worked not far from where you live nowadays, it, it is, you know, I, I was in a classroom and I had a couple of paraprofessionals who were from Puerto Rico. And more often than not, they would communicate with each other in Spanish. And when they had to communicate with me, they used English. And I didn't really resent it. In fact, I learned a little bit of Spanish <laughs> by doing that. But it, but it's it's it, it, it's it adds to basically the, the verisimilitude of the whole thing, because these two are friends. They probably one probably got the job for the other, so they work together. And of course, they're going to communicate with each other in their native language because it's easier for them to understand. Sure. And again, another way of showing the class differences yeah. here. Yeah. So, but yeah, I, it, I actually, I, I, I mean, let just come back to Aparicio for a moment. And yeah, I love the way that she was able to convey her emotions without necessarily saying anything. And and you know, there are times when she's not necessarily like a conventionally beautiful beautiful woman. I mean, she's very nice looking in that. But when she smiled on camera, oh my God, she lit up the screen. It was just, she's got this dazzling smile going on. And and that's when you go, wow, she is beautiful when she does that. And I know that, that feels yes. like very paternalistic on my part, that oh, you should smile more kind of thing. But the fact is like, she really just transformed herself when she was in a good, when her character was in a good enough mood to smile. Right. So is there anything else you want to add before we wrap this up? Well, we had a way of tying Ichumama Tambien to Roma with the character that they have in common. And it turns out we can tie Roma to children of men with something that they have in common. And that would be that closing phrase, Shanti, 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 which is something that the character of Jasper says during the film. Okay. Yes. And it's also something you hear repeatedly because remember with children of men, we hear audio during the credits and there there's basically a crowd going or several people and you hear several people saying repeatedly Shanti, Shanti, Shanti during the credits of Children of Men. Yes, that is true. That's all just a fun bit of trivia. So, uh, this is the part where we tell you that, as I mentioned, both Itu Mama Tambian and Roma are available on DVD through Criterion, 
Although there are a couple other editions of Itumama Tambien that are non-criterion as well. But the criterion one of both of them have uh, a lot of cool extras. But if you prefer to stream them online, Itumama Tambien you could currently watch on AMC Plus if you subscribe to it through Amazon Prime or through Roku, though... I can't imagine you would get the NC-17 version of either, but uh, you probably will get it if you subscribe uh, to DirecTV, where it's also showing. Yeah, I actually and, rented it through AMC Plus, and I got everything. Okay. Um, or you could rent or buy it through Amazon, Apple TV, or Google Play, or uh, YouTube only. As far as Rama goes, uh, you can, as we mentioned, watch that uh, exclusively through Netflix, as well as the new Netflix basic service they're offering if you prefer to pay less but don't mind the ads. Make of that as you will. (laughs) All right, so uh, now we have jumped over the border wall to get into Mexico, and my understanding is next time around we're going to continue south, are we not? Yes. uh, In our next episode, we're talking about South America, specifically movies that touch on or deal with the political turmoil that was going on in South America in the 1970s. And so those movies are going to be from 1972, State of Siege, directed and co-written by Costa Gavras. And then from 2009, The Secret in Their Eyes, directed and co-written by Juan Jose Campanella. And both movies are available on DVD. State of Siege, again, is available on Criterion DVD. But if you prefer to stream, State of Siege is one of a number of movies that are on Criterion DVD that are also available to stream on the Criterion channel. You could also rent or buy it through Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, Vudu, or YouTube. And as for The Secret in Their Eyes, and remember we're talking about the 2009 version, not the American remake, that one you can stream if you subscribe to DirecTV, but you could rent or buy it through Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, and most other streaming services. Bueno. And you can find us on uh, Facebook. And um, are we still going to remain on Twitter? We're going to watch that for a while. We'll stick with it for the time being. But yeah, we'll see where that goes. Okay. But you can always comment on our Facebook page. Or if you have a question or comment, you can also email us through wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com. And I am also on Facebook under my name, Sean Gallagher. And I... I am still lurking on Instagram. And Claude? Yeah, follow Sean. He'll follow you back. And you can find me so far on the Twitter machine at Claude Call. You can also check out my other podcast, How Good It Is, at HowGoodItIs.com. All right. So thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Adios, everybody. And Rebecca, please take us out of here.
This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to anchor.fm slash wordsandmovies and click on the support link. Who knows? Maybe they'll even cook a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening. <laughs>